0: Charleston, South Carolina.
1: I'm Adam Teeter, and sitting just a short distance away from you in Charleston, South Carolina, I'm Zach Jabal, and this is the Vine Pair Podcast. <laughs> and we are
0: live, Zach, in Charleston, which is crazy because it's now the third time we've basically ever met each other.
1: Yeah, pretty in much. person.
0: So that's what people don't know. We've act- we never we never met in person when we started uh, hosting this podcast over a year and a half ago. Uh-huh. We had I had done an interview with you, and then basically you reached out to me, and we're like we should do a podcast and it's that's true. basically how you became the co-host. <laughs> well, actually the,
1: the real story is I reached out to you and then kept reaching out to you until you gave in. That is uh, true. It was very. You were it was very a, persistent. It's a story of persistence. Uh, if not, uh, if not incredible talent, but yeah, it's really a, uh, it's a lot of fun to be here. Uh, as I was saying in the uh, pre-show, uh, Charleston is a, has been a, it's been a lovely visit so far. Uh, it's a city of uh, wonderful culture, it's been actually pretty nice weather today. Cold, but not too cold, and uh, and many many nicknames of which I am trying to wrap my head around. Though. So
0: you're saying you're going to move here from Seattle?
1: Uh, we'll see. There's a, there at least visit. There's a there's a nice <laughs> there's a direct flight every day, which is nice. Appreciate that. I uh, Always hate a layover. So yeah, no, it's been great so far, and uh, yeah, we've had. Uh, too much to drink already, uh, on a short visit here. Yeah. So, uh, but that has not stopped me. I'm, I've got a glass in front of me. This is another unusual thing about the recording. Is typically I'm not actually drinking, on occasion, but not usually. I think
0: you slyly drink in the studio. On occasion, depends you, on the topic. If it's would... if
1: it's relevant to the topic at hand, like when we did our uh, we did the <laughs> the hard seltzer episode, I definitely. Brought it truly for which you have still not forgiven yeah, me. I know. Mean, do, do we do
0: we need to pour one out? By the way, for-
1: <laughs> I know Nick, Engineer Nick, not with us. Uh, Sorry, Nick. Yeah, he's uh, he's back in Seattle preparing for his uh, his long voyage to Vietnam. So uh, he'll, he'll uh, we'll see how many. He's a white claw person. I, it seems to be. Seems to be. Oh, that's really weird. So speaking of
0: all your your travels here, did you drink on the plane?
1: I did drink on the plane. Yeah, i uh, i had a uh, I had a bourbon and ginger ale, which was. Raised a few eyebrows at like ten in the morning, but like you know, I was like, I'm already on Charleston time. Well, it's, see, this it's is, the afternoon.
0: We didn't talk about this in last week's in last week's episode, um, but that's the amazing thing about the airport is that you can always drink. Yeah, right. It's it's socially acceptable. It
1: it's like Even at 8 in the morning. Exactly, it's socially acceptable. That Completely is socially acceptable. That is, by the way, the voice of of our guest <laughs> today.
2: <laughs> who has? Who, juice knows, juice yet. Who, has
1: who has decided to join us early sorry. that's okay we that's appreciate okay. it kelly
0: um yeah and we did get what well, we got we got some reader <laughs> feedback uh listener feedback from that episode so one person has asked how so i think we can address it here instead sure. of doing another sorry about this dear listener uh, another episode about it but how it how you know the psalms do go into creating the airline programs and mm-hmm. actually a bunch of them do do their tastings in the air yeah so they will actually take special flights just to taste the wines because the wines taste different mm-hmm. at altitude than they do on the ground. And Mm -hmm. so they're looking for wines that actually, so what you'll find when you fly is you'll often find wines with much more aggressive acidity, much more aggressive tannin and flavor because at altitude, those things can get muted in more delicate wines. So that's why you will see lots of big Cabernets. That's why you will see Zinfandel, some, some pretty aggressive, uh, you might say like higher alcohol Pinot Noirs, because if you tried to pour like a Burgundy, um, On the flight, you would lose a lot of that nuance. So that's why you'll see Colt cabs and things like that. Um, Well, I guess if if you're lucky enough to fly up front, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. you turn left. (laughs) I (laughs)
1: definitely, I definitely, the list I saw definitely had no. Colt cabs on it. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Uh, no, but it, it's interesting. You know, um, it would have been an interesting topic. We should have maybe asked Bobby Stucky about this a couple of weeks ago. But also to just talk about that idea of drinking. Not even obviously, it's one thing when you're thirty thousand feet in the air. But even at, I think even in cities like Boulder or, or other parts of the country um, where you are at significant elevation, it probably does have some small impact on how you enjoy those wines. Which I would only speculate on. But yeah, I think it might it might slowly sort of very slightly tip the. Their perception of those drinks a little bit, but it does. Yeah. But I, that's why I stick as. As I think you said, I, I tend to stick to spirits when Me I'm too. in there. There is a trick
0: if you if you do like wine and you are and you made a right turn when you got on the plane instead of a left turn. <laughs> um, once you once you go left, you never want to turn right. Uh, basically, if you if you are lucky enough to at least be given a, a bottle of wine that's in you know a, a you know small little bottle, as much as I do not espouse doing this when you are in your normal life. Uh, we have done taste tests, and it works. You can hyper-decant it. Oh, yeah. So basically shake the bottle. So pour a little bit of wine out, oh. shake the bottle, and then pour it into your glass. And it will elevate the flavors, and you will perceive the wine better because the air is super dry in the airline, mm. uh, and you're at that elevation. So it just, it's just enhancing everything. And it. It, it, basically, it hyper-oxidizes it. Just right?
1: make sure you screw the cap back on yeah. before you do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, your teammates will not like you.
0: <laughs> but – Without further ado, instead of our banter about uh, airlines, I'd like to bring on my friend, Kelly Holmes, now your new friend.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Uh, Kelly is a Charlestonian. Is that what we say? say yeah. Charlestonian. Okay. Um, and Kelly and I met uh, about a year ago now, uh, working on another Vinepair project, SIP Trip. Uh, which is a TV show exploring culture through beverage, hosted by another friend, Jeff Porter. Um, and when I told Kelly we're coming to Charleston and I would love her to be a guest on the podcast, she was like, "Done." And also, I'll make cheese straws, which yeah. <laughs> I was completely shocked that she was willing to do. So, thank Can you. Can so we much. get a round of applause? Yeah, cheese straws. They're so easy. <laughs> and so, Kelly, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a for me. It's it's a fun. um foray into spending some time with you and learning a little bit more about vine Pear. but I love that you've come to my city. Of Charleston. course
0: we're happy to. So we wanted to kick off this conversation uh, broad subject which is the culture of southern drinking mm-hmm. um, but we can get specific you know a- as we delve into this but so before we talk about the south as a whole I want to talk specifically about Charleston. So the last time I was here mm-hmm. I was 21 and everything was served out of mini bottles. And I have to be honest, this city was not a, a city that I would get a drink in. Yeah. Um, it was basically whiskey and cokes and vodka sodas. And then everything changed. Yeah, what influenced that change? And like, where? How has Charleston, in a very fast time, become a premier city in the country for great wine, great cocktails, et cetera?
2: Well, my thought on that, and you and I have spoken about this, and and I don't know if you guys have, but is that Charleston is getting a lot of attention. It's become, you know, the best city in the country, one of the best cities in the world. And there's a lot more people traveling here from larger markets that either work in, you know, fine dining and are very savvy or they want those places. And so I believe those people moving here from other markets, San Francisco, New York, L.A., Chicago, et cetera, are migrating to Charleston. There's so many people moving here every day. The city is really, really growing. And they're wanting more from our dining scene, and we're providing it. We're also pri- providing the city with the people who have the experience from a larger market to run these restaurants in a way that's a little bit less focused on one city, but more global. Interesting. Yeah.
1: So when you talk about that influx of Talent, I suppose, or or at least people with experience from from larger yeah. markets, and then obviously going along with that sort of a an a audience for those things where is there anywhere in particular that you've noticed that like in the beverage side in particular like what has i mean I have no previous experience here, so I didn't have the mini bottle fiasco you know <laughs> <clears throat> the, the that Adam had so so I can't I don't have a frame of reference for Charleston itself. I just have the sort of frame of reference of that same evolution happening in cities across the country. And, and I wonder, you know, can you point to are there a couple of things that, that have happened, whether it's, you know, specific places that opened that have opened or people or, or like, what are some of the things that have really uh, signified that evolution?
2: It's so when I moved here in 2011 I was the general manager of McCready's restaurant and I was working um you know the door and doing 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 what you do as a GM on the floor and these people walked in and this is when I first realized it and I opened armed and hello it's so good to see you guys and they stood back and they said we've never been here and I realized that I had been they had been regulars of mine in San Francisco but it was so random to see them out of context. And then we had this great moment, and it was awesome. But that started to happen quite a bit there. And maybe that restaurant in in particular, because it was, um, you know, a special occasion focus, and, and Sean Brock had a lot of attention at the time and, and still does, um, but, you know, maybe because of that, it was more of a destination for city-savvy folk. But I think that the second point I would say that brought my mind to it was, hiring and and finding staff that had worked in new york or san francisco or wherever and that wouldn't you know by any means tell me yes that person is going to be great but it would give me an understanding of of how they've been trained where they've worked what their environment's been like what kind of guests they've dealt with etc so so hope that answers a little bit of it you (laughs) told me when you first
0: moved here there was a specific shot that everyone took. That was like a like a like a trade <laughs> handshake. So we all know about trade handshakes, right? So there's yeah. like a drinks you order to let people know that you're in the beverage world, right? So in in New York for a very long time, really not as much anymore. It was Fernet, right? You yeah. order a shot of Fernet at the bar, San and Francisco everyone knows too. that like mm-hmm. you're in the trade. Yeah. Um. Now, basically, like most people are ordering Negronis or some right? I mean, there's I mean, some I mean, sort of like I like. I'm bitter, and I like bitter things, and so therefore, that is a you trade thing. You are what you thing. drink, as That's the trade a trade thing. thing. It's a very big I trade like thing. I like bitter things. That's yeah. Very big trade thing. Yeah. Um, but here it was different, and actually, it's the same as a sh- It's the same shot that we wrote about in Newport, Rhode Island. Right. This is crazy. What is the shot?
2: So when I moved here, I was from a Fernet, as the trade secret shot place. And I was, you know, like I'd go out after work with some peers or some coworkers, and they'd be like, "Let's do some shots with Grandma." And I was like, "Of what?" They had to explain to me that it was Grand Marnier, <laughs> and I was that so is... slight. like, I was offended, and I was curious, and I was like, "And everybody does it." I think people still do it.
0: People still do it. Yeah. So, like, I almost feel like the, gram- the grandma shot now would be, like, you're telling people you're an OG trademark <laughs> in Charleston, right? Like, I've been here through it all. Yeah. I
2: think, yeah, absolutely. You've you come full circle. But do you really want to do a shot? I mean, no offense, but you know, it's not. To me, it's it's a sipping thing. It's not really. I don't so think I want to do thing. a
1: shot of Grand Marnier ever. Oh, yeah. so I have a story to tell that okay. relates to it. <laughs> I apparently was working in the Charleston beverage industry long before I should have been able to legally. Uh, but it's funny that, that, that Grand Marnier, because I have this personal affinity and also loathing of it. Uh, so when I was, I think, fourteen, um, I was on a overnight story. overnight backpacking trip with uh, with uh, my best friend and. Uh, so his dad and some of uh, another group of uh, men, his dad's age, like friend group. And we this wasn't the Boy Scouts. No, 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 no. OK, no, no, no. Uh, very much not. And so um, <laughs> and so we uh, one of the funny parts about it was they were just like, oh, yeah, you know, don't worry about a backpack. Like, we'll just bring your stuff over. We'll pack all the packs because, you know, we'll distribute the food and all that. And so my friend Kyle and I the first night of hiking is you know it's like a seven, eight mile hike the first day to get to the first campsite. It was like a four-night overnight camping trip. And uh we're just bitching the whole way about how heavy our packs are, like, God, what? like they must have of course like all the all the the grown-ups like, you know, we got all the heavy stuff. And lo and behold, when we get to camp, we open our bags and they're just all full of liquor. <laughs> <laughs> and we are we are brilliant. We are both pissed off but we also recognize an opportunity and it's like okay well we're just unpacking like everyone else is busy like setting up tents and everything so i grab what looks to me to be the fanciest bottle i can find <laughs> it is a uh, fancy looking. it is bottle. a fancy looking bottle anyone who's ever seen a bottle of grand marnier and we like hide it and we like we're like we're, like, we're gonna drink some of this tonight because like screw these guys and uh that was a mistake it's a uh, huge mistake it was n- that more the next morning was not a whole lot of fun. but i think my no, well, actually, my second hangover ever. Um, but uh, what well, your first was when you were five. First, no, first one was my first. Adam was my first Passover seder after oh, I turned gosh. thirteen. I had my four glasses of wine, man. What am I? What else am I supposed to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, And uh, so, yeah, so no, so that, that was, so Grand Marnet to me is all, I still actually like it. Um, for a while, it was hard for me. It was some bad memories, but uh, it, I, is, it is astonishing to me that that was the thing that people would take shots of voluntarily. I mean, I only it.
0: have it on
1: my bar to make margaritas.
0: That's the yeah. only reason well, I have reason it. That's the
2: reason why I would have had it too. <laughs> but that was, and I also had a hard time finding places that had Fernet at the time. They'd be like, what? What do you? What we have Jägermeister, but like I was trying to explain what it was like to them, and I was like, it's not quite the same thing as Jäger. But
1: is it has Furnett But now, now everybody has Fernet. So now Fernet's the industry shocker. So so like, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. like okay, yeah. So actually, this raises an interesting question, and, and maybe it's just sort of an open-ended one without a clear answer. But I wonder if this whole conversation about all this influx of influence and talent from other parts of the, mm-hmm. the country has it in some way. I mean, there's no doubt that probably you get a better cocktail these days in Charleston than you did a decade ago because of that. But has have there been things that have been lost? Have there been unique bits of culture? Because you know we talk about this a lot, and I was actually sort of at dinner last night giving Adam a bit of a hard time that like VinePair is a little bit responsible for this, right? Like, I think so. we well, I'm, I don't think it's a I don't think it's on the whole a bad thing, but there is this homogeneity that occasionally emerges when a thing that might have been a very regional either becomes a national phenomenon, like the Fernet shot in in uh, you know in San Francisco, and New York, and a few other places, or is crowded out by something like that, where like you have people coming in from other places, and they're like, I don't want to do. I mean, I don't necessarily think that the loss of the the shot of Grand Marnier <laughs> at the end <laughs> of a shift is necessarily a huge loss in and of itself, but it is maybe a, a unique thing that is disappearing. And you know, I think m- you could maybe speak to this Kelly in the, in the context of of beverage but also food I think where you where you're seeing the potential sort of crowding out of of you know sort of very regional or even city specific foods as the broader food trends of the country or the world kind of wash in I don't well, know I mean
0: we talked about this last night which I think is interesting um to give context is that you know there's a very well-known restaurant in New Orleans, Wilma Jean, that makes mm-hmm. biscuits. And yeah. you talk to any New Orleanian, and they'll tell you we don't eat biscuits here, right? This is a tourist's idea that they've come to the South, mm-hmm. even though New Orleans proudly thinks you know they says they are not the South; they are New Orleans, and they think they should eat biscuits, right? So, what what has there been stuff like that here that's been lost or sort of crowded out?
2: You know, I don't think so. I think, um, and I and I get that. I mean, I, I get that you don't want to dilute a culture and because you're bringing people in from other areas. But I don't – I feel that maybe our techniques have gotten better. Mm. I still think that there's a focus on really, like, honing in on the Martha Lou's, uh, the Bertha's, et cetera, you know, kind of, like, highlighting that. I mean, this festival really does a great job of bringing these people that are kind of, like, anchors of the southern cuisine here – I think the next guest on the next podcast is B.J. Dennis, and he's a huge kind of champion for Southern cuisine. But I think that it's honed in a little more focus on those places. I I do think that our cocktails have gotten better, absolutely, because people pay attention to the technique in a way. I also think that the the serving culture has gotten more grown up, Mm. and they don't drink while they're working. Oh. And I swear the stories that I heard about a place that I used to work before I worked there were crazy, like crazy. And but it's not just Charleston. I mean, I think it's a lot of places. That was a that was a pe- like people drank while they worked. Yeah, people don't do that now, at least not in my restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> so that I know of. <laughs> Talked a lot about
0: cocktails. I, I want to talk about wine. Yeah. So. Um, A conversation we've had a bunch before and I have with producers all the time Mm -hmm. that's very frustrating to me is I'll talk to producers and I'll say, you really should do visits to the South, right? You should go to Atlanta. You should go to Charleston. You should go to Nashville. And they'll say, you know, no, we're focused on New York, San Francisco, L.A. Yeah. Like what is that like for you building wine programs? Mm Because I think there's – like I would love to do much more to sound the alarm to these people that they are missing a huge opportunity mm-hmm. by not coming to these markets that are hungry for them to be here.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I think – I mean, I see people in the audience right now that are very much a part of our, our wine community in Charleston. And I think we have, honestly, because we're a little bit closer knit, a really strong, great Group of people that are passionate about, champion small producers. Yes, we have natural wines, quote-unquote. But we understand that, that that term is, in itself, another conversation. <laughs> <laughs> We've had that. done a lot that podcast. podcast. Yeah, 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 you've done that one. Um, but I think that, you know, when we were on our trip, the SIP trip in Italy, we talked a lot about that because, you know, I the list I just did at BASIC was 35 selections, that's very small, but it's not without its challenges to create something very focused and small like that. I do think that with producers that you you know maybe are talking to that say that, they're thinking of where can I have the most volume. And if it's a small city, people aren't going to. But the amount of people that come through the city is big city numbers. And so I think that's part of it. I also think that these people that have graduated – as far as pivoting you know, their roles in life, graduated from working the floor in a restaurant to having an incredible wine store, Monarch. We have you know, Graft. We have Stems and Skins. We have Edmunds Oast, We have these amazing stores that are all run by people that used to run restaurants here, and they know a lot about these producers, and they travel, and I think they're getting the word out there, but I think that for a long time people just didn't think we could sell enough wine. Interesting. But I it, think we can.
1: I yeah, I don't doubt it, and I also I would also wonder, you know, to some of these producers, you know, and, and this is as you said, Adam, a conversation we've had in, in some fashion a couple times. There's also the value of, you know, are you, are you, is it worth it for you to fight it out with fifty other Brunello producers in New York, or are you better off focusing your energy on being one of the? Not that you can't get some of those other Brunellas here, but you know, I think. In, in any market, but especially smaller markets like this one where you said there is more of a tight-knit community, mm-hmm. if you become, you know, you you come, you visit, you get to meet the people. Like, you can, I think, probably have a big impact without necessarily having to fight it out in a market like New York, which is just, you know, it's the just worst. in the end. Well, it's just, it's just it like is. everything else, it, there's just, it, it's so hard to get traction, right? And, and, and you can, and the people who get it, it's often coincidental it's not through anything they do necessarily um sometimes it is but i think like i think that's an an interesting point too that that because of the tourism here and all Mm. that there is an outsized market that isn't represented by if you look at a population tabulation for charleston you know the number of people who eat and drink here probably year-round but especially i'd imagine sort of through the whatever the peak tourist months are um i don't know that would probably not right now oh it's actually not so bad out it's It's a lot nicer
0: here than it is in new york right now it's still cold true Sorry. (laughs) I mean,
2: you think it's cold? I think it's really cold. Yeah, we got it's. It's
0: like fifty something here. No,
2: it's (laughs) forty five. It's not.
1: It is not forty five.
2: I think it's close.
1: All right. Well. Okay. We'll check. We'll check the weather later. That's another (laughs) podcast. Um, I had. I had another kind of question about about Charleston's essence. I guess what I would say, like, and this is coming from less than twenty four hours on the ground here and and not much research. So you tell me how okay. off base this is and members of the audience who are from here, please boo him. Yeah. Well, only if I'm wrong. But you no, know, always <laughs> uh it, there is there is a sense I get where uh that I've gotten just in being here and, and talking to people a little bit of this sort of um idea of Charleston as sort of this city that is both proudly you know, sort of uh, very proud of itself and its history and, and the legacy here um, of, of all sorts of things, but also at the same time grappling with this kind of big transformation that's happening, you know, people moving here. You know, I think, uh, you know, you talked about people moving here from New York and San Francisco on the restaurant side, but I think it's it's important maybe to talk about the, the general population shift of people moving here for work in all kinds of other tech, sectors, tech yeah. and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is this is, you know, my question is sort of, how does how, how do you think, as someone, you know, Kelly, who yourself have moved here relatively recently, mm-hmm. you know, eight years ago, how do you see, you know, Charleston sort of presenting itself to newcomers? Not so much to tourists, but to people who have moved here, who have decided for at least some period of time it's going to be home. You know, how does that – how is that sort of sense of what Charleston is about conveyed? Um, Maybe specifically through, like, food and drink as opposed to everything, because <laughs> that would be yeah, a very difficult a question to answer. Yeah,
2: there, but I –
1: Ask um, questions, there's always a lot there.
2: That's good, that's good, that's good. I I, I feel when you use tools that you use in other cities, like Eater or whatever, those um, outlets give you a great view of places that are a great representation of what Charleston is offering right now. And I think that, you know, when, when I go to New York or whatever, like what do I look at if it's not from my friends that I've talked to or that go to places that they work? But... Um, so I think that's part of it. I also think that we're very friendly here. People actually say hello. I've actually had a lot of people either come into the restaurant or whatever and say, like, people are so nice here. Like, they, they they say hello on the street, and I think that's part of it. I also think that there's a lot of things as a city we're working on, maybe not specifically food and beverage focused, that that really need to catch up to the growth, which is, you know, our transportation. We really don't have... public transportation but it's being it's part of a discussion right now Mm -hmm. um so that's you know that's definitely part of it and and just i think you know areas that are being built in this town um trying to make them accessible to areas that people can walk Mm -hmm. and with restaurants and bars and things like that and 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 that's not necessarily happening but i think people are trying to make that happen Mm -hmm. That makes a lot yeah, of sense. Mm-hmm.
0: So as for my last question, mm-hmm. um, you know, besides coming here for, you know, the weekend of Charleston Wine and Food, yeah, if you have 48 hours, where oh, do wow. you
2: go? All right. Um, and go- apologies to anyone that she may leave Yeah, up. I know. I want to say <laughs> everything. Um, you go to um, Bowen's Island for oysters and watch the sunset there. Okay. It's amazing. They're closed on Sunday and Monday, so don't go those days. Um, you go... You walk around downtown in the French Quarter. Just walk. Just let yourself figure it out. It's so beautiful. Um, You go up and down King Street, just the area between, like, Market and Broad because there's these great old antique shops that really speak to a little bit of the history of Charleston, what people had here. Um, you go eat at some great places. Where? Oh my God. (laughs) Adam's favorite thing is to put guests on the spot. Um, he should have warned you. Well, if you're looking for something healthful, I was just the general manager there at basic kitchen. So that's a great spot. But if you want to treat yourself, uh, fig is, It's a darling here, and it's because Mike and Adam are Class X. And they also opened The Ordinary um, a while ago, and that's also amazing. Um, There's a new place, a second of the Estadio crew here on Spring Street that I've had the pleasure of dining once, and it was amazing. Um, There's uh, XBB, which is like your Asian street food, and they're big darlings in the city. There's Chenu, which is amazing, and... um, there's so many places. Malagon, Stems and Skins, and Park Circle. If you want a little tin seafood and some vermouth, um, Renzo, great pizza. Where are we going tonight? Yeah, where
1: are we going? We are going to go. Hungry.
2: We are going to go up to Stems and Skins and have a little aperitivo, and then we're going to come back downtown and we're going to go to the Ordinary.
0: Awesome. There you go.
2: See, I take my own advice. There
0: we go. Well, if we
1: see any of the audience there, we'll understand.
0: We'll why. understand why.
2: <laughs> come up and say hi. Well.
0: Kelly, I want to thank you so much for joining us. This has been really fun. Thank you all for being an amazing audience. Thank
2: you very much for having me.
0: And uh, and now, if anyone has any questions, we'll take some. And...
1: Anyone? I'm going to repeat the question really quick. And then maybe I think all of us have a thought on I, that. I have a I thought. Could, yeah. So, the, so the, question, the question was how the sort of rise of, let's say, recommendation sites like TripAdvisor and Yelp are affecting the culinary scene and... And if they're like what that impact might be. You want to, you want to start? You want me to start?
2: I, um, I'll start. I, I think it's very, I think social media is a huge change in the culinary world. Um, absolutely. The, the Yelp and the Tripadvisor part of social media, um, is there negative aspect to what it's doing? Yeah, for sure. Um, because in my understanding, the people that are writing the reviews aren't um you know writers. they're not reviewers. We don't know what their background is. We don't know where they speak from and so even if you know that reading those sites and you hear somebody be like, "This was bad, I didn't like it you're gonna it's good it's like you can't take away that comment in a courtroom right it's like it's in there so that happens, but if your overall reputation speaks for you by your actions, then that doesn't play into the factor of the restaurant, positive right. or negative. Does that make sense?
0: I mean, I think also there's been lots of cases with these sites. I mean, I would say they haven't, it hasn't been great. Um, while it feels really democratic, like, oh, we all get a say, we actually know, first of all, there's like a race to three and a half stars, right? Almost every restaurant, like, that just becomes average, bar, hotel – also, we know that people stack the reviews, right? So there's lots of cases that have been uncovered where, you know, businesses pay for all these fake reviews to be written by someone in some other place in the world, right? A bunch of people just behind computers to either downgrade a competitor or to upgrade a place. Um, so I think it's, it's not amazing, right? And then unfortunately, the other thing about these sites is the majority of us, like how many people here write reviews on Yelp and TripAdvisor? how many times do you do it when you love the place? And how many times do you do it when you hate the place? Right? Like, most people only use those sites when they're complaining. And that's also, like, tons of studies have been run that prove that, right? That we usually, we to those sites when it's like, my hotel air conditioner was broken, and I didn't appreciate how the front, you know, front desk spoke to me about it because they told me it would take 30 minutes to fix the air conditioning instead of 15, and I'm hot right now. <laughs> and, like, that's when people go and complain on these sites. And... It doesn't it it's really bad for these businesses who are just trying to do their best job. I understand there's there's definitely businesses out there across the entire country that should get called out, right? And we should be alerted and that's why there's other things like Better Business Bureau, et cetera, to do that. But on these systems to punish someone because you didn't like how the server put the glass of wine down or something is just bullshit.
1: Yeah. I gosh, I feel like I kind of land somewhere different than both of you on this. I think I think there's all of the criticisms that you've that you've leveled are I think accurate and I share them and I think there are real issues that come sometimes from, uh, let's say a, a manipulation of rating sites either by the rating site itself as you know there were plenty of examples of Yelp essentially extorting businesses mm-hmm. um, or of you know businesses themselves sort of gaming the system. I will say though that I think there there is there are a couple of positives maybe that come out of it in its in their own way one of them is that it does provide a a place for a person who otherwise might completely be ignored who has a legitimate complaint and there are them out there you know i think one of the one of the real risks we actually run culturally these days is we've all seen the you know twitter you know the sort of viral tweet or something about someone's horrible experience with an airline or a whatever but in, but if you're the kind of person who hasn't a bad experience and you for whatever reason aren't already well known or, or don't somehow trend, you know your truly negative experience may have no outlet because if you're not if you're not a a person who happens to be a, a you know a food critic or a travel writer or something and you have a, a genuinely bad experience, that you may want to really truly like out there for the public to be aware of. That, you, I mean, yeah, you can report it to the Better Business Bureau, but that stuff's not published, really. I mean, the, the the business has given a rating, but that's about it. I will also say, though, on the flip side, that one of my things that I find actually most, um, that, I, that I like least about things like Yelp and TripAdvisor is that, unfortunately, by giving this sort of platform, it has encouraged people to take their complaints Uh. To the internet, as opposed to doing what I think is right as, as a as a diner or as a guest. Yeah. And first, tell the restaurant, tell the hotel. You know, I, I, I as someone who works has worked in restaurants for a really long time. It's it's very frustrating to me when something goes wrong and I don't know about it. You know, we we people in hospitality, generally speaking, if they're in it for the right reasons, we genuinely genuinely want to make your dining experience better. And if your entree is cold or your wine is not what you wanted, or you know, or you you know, you you've been waiting for an hour for, for a course or something, you know, something's going wrong, especially when it's things about personal preference. It's I mean, hopefully if you've been waiting an hour for your course, your server should have noticed. I mean, yeah. they don't always <laughs> Kelly I'm sure can tell you plenty yep. of stories. Yeah. But um but generally genuinely speaking, or generally speaking, if there's something that you're not happy with, it's I think better for everyone if that's something a conversation you have with server or manager or whomever before having that conversation with the internet because if you don't I feel like if you don't give the business a chance to make things right not everything's going to be perfect right your your steak's going to be overcooked your entree's going to be cold the the you know beer's going to be flat the whatever right that stuff happens none of us are perfect but to me it's part of being a good diner or a good hotel guest or whatever is you got to at least give the place a chance to make it right if you don't do that then I think your complaint should be disregarded because in the end like you got to give someone a chance to fix their mistake if they dismiss your mistake if they don't try to make it right then i think it's, right. it's valid to have criticisms and to take them public and i would also say that it's good to write reviews when you're happy too. that's fair. yeah i
0: mean i think we we've had this this is a little bit now of a conversation we have a lot um that i believe very strongly in that you know everyone that we sort of in our orbit of beverage talks about is like you know a really great wine bar etc like if you don't like your glass of wine or you don't like your cocktail like they'll take it back if they're good like that's their whole point is that you enjoy it, right? So, you need Absolutely. to give them you need to give them that chance. You know, like there's there's been very few. Pla- I mean, I've I've heard stories for sure about especially some very trendy wine bars in New York City who won't do that. Hmm. Um, but that's you know they will, that, the word gets out. Like people start to learn. Like oh, this is a place that makes diners feel uncomfortable or makes pl- people feel like they're wrong or they they're stupid or whatever. And like no one wants to drink and eat at those places. Right, so you have to be able to say, like, look, you know, I know we had a conversation about the wine, and I know I told you I like this thing, and you recommended this, but I've just tasted it, and like, I really don't like it. If it's a good place, they'll figure out another. If they pop the bottle, they'll figure out how to sell it by the glass. They can
2: always yeah. do that.
0: You know, they'll figure they something. They'll, they'll chase the staff on it. They'll like. There's a lot of things they can do besides making you feel like you need to now spend the sixty bucks on that bottle or something. Yeah. Instead of you running to Yelp and being like, yo, I, I. You know, bought this bottle and it was disgusting, and yada yada
1: yada. If you never told them, yeah. If you if you decide that your only recourse is to choke it down without giving the restaurant a chance to make it better, then you as a guest have failed. But if the restaurant makes you choke it down, then they have failed, and that's something that you definitely need to let everyone know. Yep, 100%. absolutely. Any other questions out there? I know we had at least one more hand. Oh, yes.
0: So the so the question was this: this trend in not drinking or low ABV drinking. How is that affecting right? So, the thing we've noticed in our research is it's not a trend. So, and I've I've now sat down with, like, the CMO of Diageo, the head of Bacardi, AB Bev. Like, what actually is happening is it, it these low ABV drinks, whether it's good or not, are actually an excuse when drinking to drink more. Mm. So, the White Claw explosion this summer, which is a true explosion – is not per, a person having one or two four and a half percent white claws? They're drinking a case,
1: <laughs>
0: and what, I do not think that's a good thing at all. Um, but that's actually this is this phenomenon that like everyone in the in the industry is trying to understand is like is the the younger millennial generation. I mean, I'm an older millennial, but as the younger millennial, millennial generation, just looking for that like perfect buzz, not too. Much, not too little, but like where is that standing? I mean, the only time I'm seeing lip being used in New York is as an ingredient in cocktails, not as a mocktail. I think that like, but what is good about all of us talking about this is that we do have to have a conversation about overindulgence. And that that is something that we ought to be aware of in this industry as just general consumers, right? At the end of the day, like alcohol makes you feel away because your body doesn't like it. So, like, we have to – as much as it's great – it's it's tasty beverages, we have to be understanding that, like, it's not healthy for us. So that – in that regard, these conversations are really good. But I, it, it's really interesting because we've really tried to cover this. Like, is this actually happening? And I'm curious, you know, if you're seeing it, it – you know, if you're seeing people drink less. But for us, we're just seeing people drink – stop stop drinking on certain nights. But then on the weekends, like, they're going hard.
2: Yeah. Like yeah, weekend warriors. Um, well, I'd I'd love to say a little something about that because the you know when I was at Basic Kitchen, which was very recent, it was a huge part of our program. Uh, we had you know kombucha made for us on draft. We had an entire mocktail department on our beverage menu, um, and what I found it did in the dining room was offered something for everybody at the table, mm-hmm. rather than that person who's not drinking either for a minute or for good or for whatever something that's other than water to have um, also that's healthful. Um, I think that I didn't – when you – it depends on the ethos of a restaurant, right? But when you have a motivation that is, you know, cleaner fuel, longer adventures, keeping your body going, you need to have moderation with that. So I think that, like, we do use seed lip in mocktails. Mm-hmm. Like, that was – and it was, you know, new to me. I didn't know about it until two years ago. Um, but I do think that, that there are more people you know, bringing it down a notch. Yeah. And I think that um, I haven't – to answer the question, is it affecting business, I didn't see that necessarily because there were still many other people that were drinking a lot of the rosé, et cetera, which is great. Um, but I do think it, it, when you're ta- bringing up you know, lifestyle and health and all of that, that is something that I think I'm very happy to see in this industry mm-hmm. that people – who lived their life in a way um, kind of like I'm a rock star and I'm hard and fast and this is it, realized that, that that road doesn't last very long. Yeah. So they wanted to change it and are still successful and enjoying their lives not drinking, and yeah. I love that. I mean, they're, they're definitely,
0: there definitely has to be even larger conversations about wellness in the industry.
1: Yeah, for yeah. sure. I want to just add one last point here, which is that I think there is a, a, a very good – it's good that, as you said, Kelly, that there is uh, there are additional things maybe on offer for people who are not drinking mm-hmm. for whatever reason. I think it's also good for restaurants that those additional things on offer are now, like, priced the same as a cocktail, right? Mm-hmm. Like, part, yeah, of the, part of the important conversation here is, like, it is also much better for restaurants. I mean, there, there's a reason why people have jumped on board with this. Because if you can turn that person who's ordering water or, you know, a soda or an iced tea or whatever for $2, 3 $4... And instead, get them to buy a thirteen-dollar drink, maybe several of them, like that's profit. And I think that the the adaptation or adaptation and, and adoption of this of these products is, you know, maybe some people are about the wellness, but I think there's a, just a cold hard dollar sort of rationale there, which is like, you know, I can sell this to someone who otherwise might not spend money on a, on a beverage and. That's a win for me because probably your markups are the same. You yeah. know, you're marking it up. It's a big, you know, it's the driver of profit for most restaurants is beverage. So, right. you know, in that sense, I think it's good. Cool. Yeah.
0: So, Kelly, I want to thank you again so much for joining us today on thank the Vine you Pair for podcast. Thank, thank you so much here. for being an amazing audience here in Charleston. Thank
2: you very much, guys.
0: Um, and yeah, you know, thank you so much for listening. Obviously, Rate us, review us, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps people discover the show. And, Zach, I will see you right back here next week.
1: Well, not right here. But well, not right here, thank
0: uh, you. Cool.
1: Yeah, over, over, the, over the internet as usual.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the Vinepair Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please rate us or review us wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps people discover the show. Now, for the credits. The Vinepair Podcast is produced by myself and Zach Jabal and is engineered by Nick Patrie we recorded out of Cloud Studios in Seattle, Washington, and also in our New York City headquarters. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vinepair staff who help us conceive of the show every single week. Thanks again for listening.